so much information and so little knowledge I learned we need to make time for our husbands and our wives and that we're drifting far from what's important in our lives not you and me I'll make your motor on don't you ever doubt it but baby hurry up and come so I can tweet about it I'll spend the day inside the space contagious and sad Cyberspace, Kenny White. Kenny White's going to be in South Florida next Saturday night, part of the Emerald Concert Series in Hollywood, and Kenny is on the line. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Michael. How are you? Good. So where are you now? I'm in Brooklyn, New York today. And what what brought you to New York? Well, my birth. <laughs> my, birth was take, my, my birth took place in the East Village of Manhattan, and... Queens, New York, and then soon after, in my uh, middle school days, Fort Lee, New Jersey, right across the bridge. So still afforded me the luxury to be at the Fillmore East every uh, second or third week. Are your parents musically inclined? My my uncle, Louis, my father's brother, um, was a great piano player, a great guitar player, an artist. Uh, he was self-taught and had zero confidence he would... He would get these great auditions once with the Dorsey band, and he wouldn't show up saying they got the wrong cat. But um, he was a fabulous talent, and he, he he liked to play Cuban music. So that's what he ended up doing for the majority of his life, playing one-nighters, uh, cruise ships, and then the Borscht Belt in the Catskills in New York. Did he influence you musically? I think he did, because uh, he recorded a, a record in uh, in the 50s, called Abela the Fagala, which was a song that he had written about um, a 300-pound, I think, a transvestite or, or whatever at the time, with uh, a Fred Astaire with purple hair, the queen of the cha-cha-cha. And it was it, it grooved really hard, and, and I would always make him play the piano solo when he came over to visit. And, uh, and I listened to it not that long ago and I said well I, I play that's you know I play very similar to that feel so I think he did have an influence on me well when did you decide to go into the music business well you know I, I always I always a huge fan of music the transistor radio was under my pillow when I went to bed and I, I just from the minute I got home from school I was listening to albums and and Playing piano from the time I was sick, but six, but never realized that uh, it might be something I'd want to do until I heard the Grateful Dead, <laughs> and then I I saw that this was another way of communicating because uh, they never played anything the same way twice, and you know think what you will of them, they were kind of poor man's jazz to me, 
um, improvisation was something I had never been uh, exposed to. And I, I loved that you could hear something, someone would play and answer it with your instrument in a phrase. And this was a new way to communicate. And I was hooked from age 15. So you had a band at age 15? Yeah, cavalry. <laughs> we went, I went out and bought a Farfisa organ and a Leslie, and we practiced a lot more than we played, but we ended up playing our high school dance and, uh, and a, couple of local, a couple of local gigs here and there. They hated us because we were a jam band 40 years ahead of our time, 20 did, years ahead of our time. Did you go to college? For a year and a half, I went to Rutgers, Livingston College at Rutgers in Jersey. But I was not a, I was not a student. Uh, um, I had ADD also, which was which was not diagnosed till many many years later. So I would just I, I was reading the same paragraph over and over and over, and I had no interest in in writing or language until later, which. All of a sudden, I, one day, I just became fascinated with, with language and the, the ability to say things in different ways. And, uh, I was just hooked in a whole different way. What What did you do when you dropped out of college? I loaded up the U-Haul truck with my band, Canyon Sparrow, <laughs> and we drove to Boston and moved to Boston because New York was too intimidating. And Boston was close enough to come home if we ran out of money. So at 19, uh, we, we, we moved uh, as a band, found a house up in Jamaica Plain around Boston and moved up there where I stayed for 11 years. So you had success I, up there? Somewhat. There wasn't a whole lot to have up there. I was, I was doing studio sessions, but there weren't that many. And then Livingston Taylor had heard me at one of the sessions, and he asked me and uh, and some of my friends, if we would record some songs with them, and suddenly that turned into opening the whole in the Ronstadt tour in '78, you know, living in the USA tour, and then right after that, I, I found my way to Jonathan Edwards' band, and I stayed there for like eight or nine years. You were playing keyboard so, with yeah. these bands? Yes, I was, and bass, but mostly mostly keyboard. When did you piano. Uh, when did you go uh, solo? Not until 2001. <laughs> That's a long time. You, so you were... A, I, I, I know, looking at your uh, bio, Kenny, that you, you didn't quit the music business per se, but you settled down in New York and, be, and, sold, and sold your soul, or sold out. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> uh, except I never looked at it that way because outside of the lyrics, I was amazingly proud of what I was doing but I was doing TV commercials something I was never looking to do um, and I landed in New York uh, we moved back there I said let's give it two years and then move somewhere else and then I got called to do some recording sessions and the next thing I know the first the first session I'm doing in New York uh, for a commercial is with Steve Gadd playing drums Tony Levin uh, from King Crimson and Peter Gabriel's band playing bass, all these heavy cats. And I said, hmm, this is interesting. So uh, they asked me if I wanted to write some stuff, and the next thing went on the air for five years. Uh, with Robin Bateau, I wrote The Unsinkable Taste of Cheerios, and then uh, and then I never looked back. Um, 
I was playing with the greatest players in the world. I was getting paid well for it, and I was learning my trade better than I could have ever learned it anywhere else. But, well, did anyone accuse you of selling out? Back in the day, yes. Well, no, not until I, I, when I, when I started, I put out my first record in 2000, 2001, and I was advised by interviewers and stuff not that I shouldn't be talking about that um, because there was a stigma attached to it. Well, I did talk about it, and there was not a stigma attached to it by then because people were already trying to get their music into commercials. I mean, that happened, that started happening in the 90s, and I, I hated it, actually. When they were actually buying songs, when when Led Zeppelin be, became Cadillac and and everyday people became Toyota, I was throwing pillows at the TV. Uh, that's because you, they put you out of work. No, that was because I I hated the idea of the of songs that were so meaningful to me and everyone else being used to sell products. Now original music, I can I can see, you know, it was just like. Uh, I, you know, I didn't. I didn't want to hear everyday people and think about Toyotas. Is what I'm saying. So they sold out. The artists who allowed their music to be to sell product, they're the ones who sold out. Yeah, but then everybody did it. I mean, Dylan has done it three or four times. They, they've all done it. They they sweeten the pot so much. A few people didn't. Uh, when I was working in the '80s, late '80s, they offered Springsteen twelve million dollars for Born in the USA um, for Chrysler. And he said no, and that's twelve million dollars to walk to your mailbox, not to ever record anything or anything. That was just to go pick up the check. And he said no. And then when uh, Microsoft started, I believe it was Microsoft, might have been Apple. Um, they asked REM. Uh, they offered them six million dollars for it's the end of the world as we know it, and they passed. And so they bought Start Me Up. Stones don't pass on anything. <laughs> well, you know, you know that's interesting because does it matter? I mean, do do you look down on the Stones for selling their music and and not no. Bruce Springsteen? No, um, but at the time, I probably would have. It, it, I think it's a it's a case of the time. Um, I don't look down on Dylan, although when he did that Victoria's Secret ad, I, I just thought he was nuts. But. Um, I didn't look down on the Stones for doing that, but I did respect uh, R.E.M. and Springsteen for for doing what they did as well. Kenny course, White, if, yeah. If Ken- anyone needed twelve million dollars, they wouldn't have passed. <laughs> Kenny White is on the line. We're talking about his career now. Kenny is going to be in South Florida playing his music Saturday night at the Emerald Concert Series at St. John's Lutheran. 2919 Van Buren Street in Hollywood. I believe that show starts at 7.30 this Saturday night. If you'd like information, 954-290-4141. We didn't talk about your music at all. You were, were you writing music for these commercials in New York? Yes, that's all I did. I wrote, arranged, produced, sang on many of them, sang either lead or in the groups on many of them, but hired, you know, I got to the point where, you know, I was doing a demo for something, and I said, who do you want? I said, Mavis Staples, and they flew her in the next day to sing a demo, which no, which they didn't even buy. So you would <laughs> you would make a commercial that lasts 30 seconds? Yes, So you'd write or 60. You'd write music, 30-second-long uh, songs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so when I started doing 
records again after like 17 years of that. Um, I was working with a woman named Holly Palmer on reprise records, and then right after that, Peter Wolf. And I'm thinking, wow, four-minute songs. I, I remember these. I love this. <laughs> now, I, I recognize so, Peter Wolf's name. Uh, Peter from the Jay Giles from band. From the Jay yeah. Giles band. And he's still recording, right? And recording great records. These are these are timeless records. Uh, we're working on the fifth one together. Uh, I started in 98 recording with Peter. And the second record we did, Sleepless, was Rolling Stone uh, voted it one of the top 500 albums ever made, uh, what, what, which I produced. Well, what was that transition like? It, well, it sounds like you're producing music as well, so you're recording your own music. When you quit that cushy job in New York City, uh, yeah. how, what was that transition like? Well, it was more right into the production. I produced Holly's record on Reprise and then Peter's first record on Mercury. And then I started writing. I, 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 had, gone, I had gone through a divorce, and uh, songs were starting to come out in different different songs for me, much more revealing, um, much more of a perspective, more of a sense of humor. And and so I recorded a bunch of them. And my friends, including Peter, said, you need to finish this album. And I said, and then what? Go out on the road and play? <laughs> and they said, yeah. And I said, I don't think I want to do that. So I did finish the album. And Next thing I knew, you know, Sean Colvin was asking me to open for her and then Cheryl Wheeler and uh, Richard Schindel. And all of a sudden I was a performing artist and loving it, loving it like I hadn't loved anything were prior you, to this. Were you doing folk? This It sounds like you're associated now with the folk music world. Was this the world you were yes, involved except, with? Yeah. yeah, except if you ask the folk labels, I'm not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they, okay. You know, uh, uh, what was it? Signature, I think, records. And they, they said, I don't know. We like your stuff, but you play piano. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, you want you're the 19th guitar player to sign. They, they were just so uh, particular about uh, their folk, what they described as folk. And um, I, pl I end up playing a lot of folk rooms because I need... My lyrics are so important to the music, and, and those are the audiences that listen intently. And so I love them, but I, it's not really... I have a couple of folk, folky songs, but it's not really a considered folk, I guess. What, what do you consider yourself? Huh. Eclectic. Uh, a, product of, a product of my history. I just picked up so many different styles, you know. I I loved everything from uh, from George Jones to to Miles Davis. Um, loved it, felt it, could could play some of it, not so much the Miles stuff. Well, um, when, so when, there's elements of that. There's elements of everything, I think, in my records. You certainly have a distinctive style in your songwriting. Was that style developed through your years of? writing commercials or or how did you develop that style well that that's a good question i think the antithesis happened um i have very few hooks in my songs i have very few choruses that repeat that that sing along each time i could name maybe two or three in, in four albums and that may have been a sub a subliminal reaction to having written nothing but hooks and nothing but catchy you know things you remember and repeat for uh, for 17, 18 years. 
Um, I don't. It was not a conscious decision. So, to answer your question, no, I don't think I don't think it was an influence in uh, in my writing. Although it was an influence in my production and recording, because I learned so much about about that. Kenny White is on the line. He's in concert next Saturday night. So, uh, do you play? Uh, you just play keyboards. I play a keyboards and guitar in the show. Okay. The guitar. And the show is next Saturday night in Hollywood, 2919 Van Buren Street. Information, 954-290-4141. Yeah. So what is, what is your goal here? What, do you want to continue recording? Do you want to have a hit song? I mean, what, what's your intention? Well, I'm, I'm not going to have a hit song. I think, I'm, I think you know, it's, it's too late. Uh, and I'll tell you, even, even having a hit song today, unless you're, unless you're getting 100 million streams, um, I just want to be able to play for a certain amount of people each night and know they're going to show up, you know, 75, 100 people, wherever I go, that would be total success for me right now. I had a wonderful career and I love what I'm doing. And, and when people come and see me, they seem to, they seem to like it a lot and keep asking me back. But I, I, uh, it's, you know, it, Sometimes it's hit or miss, you know, and in the middle of Kansas, I'll draw 150 people and then I'll go three hours away to Lawrence and I'll draw 12. So it's really odd. So I would like consistency because I'm, I'm in it for the long run. I will do this as long as I can carry a keyboard and, uh, and, and drive and drive at night. <laughs> well, when you write a song, do you are, are you trying to push buttons? Are you just trying to relate to people, or, or trying to tell a personal story? Do you do you, the last one? You, I'm trying to tell a personal story, and and if I tell it truthfully enough, and honestly enough, I find that it will, it, you know, it will resonate with with many people, and that was really a revelation to me when I started writing things like that, because I was not trying to please anyone. I wasn't. I was not thinking about an audience. I was just writing what was on my mind, and and able to make some of it rhyme, and and be singable. And I found so many. I started getting letters from people. You know, you've changed, you've, you've saved the, you know, you sa- you saved my year. You saved my marriage. You know, you ruined my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> this and that. And I started seeing how how important this was. And, Whenever I've thought about trying to write for the stage or for someone else's benefit, I, it's never been anything that has legs. I, it's always gone within a couple of weeks. It's the stuff that feels the most real and honest to me. I've written songs where I just couldn't believe that what was coming out. Like I have a song called Five Girls, which starts in a bar and ends in a bar. And when it ended in the bar, I'm, I'm writing the words and saying, I can't believe this song's going to end here. It was like my hand was just moving. <laughs> well, that sounds so like the fun. The best songs are when I'm not trying to do anything. Yeah. How, well, how often do you write? <laughs> not much these days. Uh, when I my second to last record with Comfort in the Static, it took me five years to to start writing after that, and then I wrote a lot of songs in the next year, and then I recorded the most recent long list of priors. And now it's been almost five years again, and I'm just starting to uh, 
actually before you called today, I was just sitting down and and starting to think of maybe uh, maybe this could work on something or this could work. But I have not I have not written in in a few years. Kenny White is on the line. He will be in concert next Saturday night. I have one more song. I'm I'm curious. One more question. I'm curious about. You said your uncle uh, in the music business lacked confidence. So what gives you the confidence? I wish I knew that, Michael. Um, my whole family, in a way, you know, never really uh, rose to their to their capabilities. You know, my my father ended up as a factory worker for many years, and he was very bright and very creative. Um, but didn't dare, you know, he had two kids at home. He didn't dare upset the apple cart. Um, my brother, who's, who's a, a brilliant writer and, and, and very smart and very creative and could have written for any number of magazines or journals or even be an author, he was a social worker for a lot of years and uh, did that stuff on the side. And... And then when I got into the jingles business, and then someone said, uh, I remember the first day I had, they said, oh, I like that song. Let's record that. You win. Let's put strings and horns on it. Gulp. I've never in my life written for strings and horns. So the next day, I had to have a, a part written for 15 string players and five horn players. And I just did it. I just like stayed up all night, sat there, called friends of mine who have actually done it for a little help here and there. But I did it. I, I dove into the middle of it, and I don't know where that came from. I conducted the London Symphony Orchestra for a, for a commercial. I don't know the first thing about conducting. But that, do you, it sounds like such an exciting time getting saying a person's name and getting them for the commercial. Do you miss those days? You know what I miss? I miss, I miss the live sessions. Because as as computers became more prevalent, those live sessions dwindled, and uh, I miss the input from five other players in a room. Because no matter how great you are on on your Pro Tools or on your computer, you're still going to be one personality. And you know, I I miss the camaraderie and I miss the collaboration in the studio. So my records, I still do live. I don't do anything on computer. The last two records are all live in the studio, and 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 I just I'm that's what I miss. I miss those sessions, but they don't happen anymore. They haven't happened in in 15 years since computers came along and and took over. It seems like it's a really hard time to make it in the music business if you if you're just getting started. Well, if I had kids, I think I would I would push them away from it. Because uh, as much as I, I think I would nurture their art, artistic tendencies, there's no way to make money in the music business now unless you're putting butts in seats. You, um, you can sell records, you can sell CDs. If you have you know, 10,000 streams on Spotify, you're going to get about you know, $10, if that. Um, there's, no, there's no way, there's no avenue for uh to support yourself unless you are bringing people into clubs and they're paying ticket prices and that's that goes for the established bands too that's why ticket prices are i think are so damn high right now because uh that's the only way they're making money they're not selling records anymore 
I toured with Still, Steve Stills last year, um, and uh, he said, no, his, he used to get a, a nice check at the end of the year from all the old Crosby, Stills, Nash records. He goes, now it's all streaming, and it's like one hundredth of what he used to get. Well, someone's so making it's, that it's money. Tough. <laughs> someone's making money. Yeah, someone who owns Spotify and, and Pandora, and, and I think some of the labels have also gotten their fingers into it again. But it's not being passed on to the artists yet. I think Congress is starting to to look at it, but um, there have been a few little inroads made. But generally, it's the same thing that, that you know, that killed the record business. It's, it's It'll end up killing this business, too. Not only that, but, uh, you know, where I know there are Dylans out there and Jonies and, and Neil Youngs, but are they going to want to do this? Are they going to, you know, uh, if they're pragmatic and smart, are they going to say, no, I want to just, you know, get a check for $100 every two months? I, I don't know. Kenny White. Kenny's going to be in concert next week. Uh, well, well, this is the last question. Because it seems like you you've... can ask as many, as <laughs> but no. What, what? I mean, I'm not a performer or singer songwriter, but I you, you have to fill those seats. And what's it like being on stage? Is that is that a thrill for you to get on stage and people sing people your songs? Well, it is now. Um, I I used to open for Jonathan Edwards in the '80s, and he really encouraged me to open the shows. He says you got a full house, you got you know you got a keyboard, you got an audience, do it. And I was writing songs, although they, the songs I was writing, I, I they weren't they weren't what I'm writing now. They were more manipulative in a way. They they were they were seeking to be clever or or, or fancy or or you know I didn't know I, I didn't know how to write a song. I think in my until until I was in my forties. Um, and so I got on stage for 40 minutes and it seemed like hours. It just seemed, my palms would sweat. I mean, I did well, but it, I just never felt comfortable. Cut to 2001 when I'm now singing songs to my audience that I believe in and, and I feel and, and resonate with me. And that same 40 minutes on stage feels like two minutes because it's not about me anymore. It was about me in my 20s. I'm up here doing this. Now it's not about me at all. It's about what I'm singing and trying to reach people and trying to connect with people by offering my my little interpretation of uh, my vision. And it's a whole different, an entirely different thing for me, night and day. Kenny White is in concert next Saturday night. I'm going to play one more song. Tell me about... Uh, the other shore. The other shore was uh, was written in 2015, right? You know, when Bowie died, and then a bunch of other musicians just kept going. Like every two weeks, we had another great artist pass away, and I lost a close friend that year. And I was I wrote the other shore in anticipation of losing someone very close to me. Kenny White, thank you so much for taking time to talking to us. Thank you, Michael. There's a time early evening The city shows its mercy Lines are cast through the river glass As the sun sinks into Jersey 
the lady glints the copper torch of liberty on my right the faded prints of where you stood so near to me You can hear the peals of thunder And I've spent hours sitting there Confusing love with hunger Today my longing knows no limits I'm held by what I cannot hold Stay with me Just one more chance to make you laugh. I'd give the world, you know. I have not always shown my best. I've wounded those I most adored. But all is well, safely rest. I will meet you. Oh. Sure. 